Hello, reader. I'm Alex. I'm Kelly. And this is the LitJoy Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the LitJoy Holly Black Collection and the LitJoy Cassandra Clare Collection. In the Holly Black Collection, you can find a book-inspired advent and stationery set in our shop right now. And for the Cassandra Clare Collection, you can find book-inspired jewelry, stained glass pendants, and apparel, and more. Today is also the day that a lot of our December drops are happening. Uh, some of the items you can find in this drop are going to be our Caraval items with Stephanie Garber. And we have a lot of witchy items. I'm very excited about this. We've got uh, divination bags, witchy mugs, aprons. We have an Alice in Wonderland tea tin dropping. And a new collection I'm excited about is our Reader's Dessert Plates. We have our new Yule Reader Plate dropping as well. It's part of a four-plate series. Which they are, darling. One for every season. So check out the shop. And as a reminder, our private membership group, The Lunicorns, does get early access to all of our shop drops. If you're listening to this podcast after December, don't worry, we got you. Use the code PODCAST10 at litjoycrate.com forward slash podcast anytime for a 10% off discount. That's L-I-T-J-O-Y-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And the coupon code is P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0. So all this will be in the show notes below and happy shopping. Welcome, readers, to today's episode. We are so excited. We get to interview Cassandra Clare and Holly Black, two of our favorite authors in the fantasy world. Mm -hmm. And we are going to start by kind of giving you a little bit of a bio for each author in case you have not read any of their works. Um, But I'll be very shocked if you haven't. So Cassandra Clare is a number one New York Times USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Publishers Weekly bestseller in her Shadowhunters series, which compiles of, I believe, four series. Her books have more than 36 million copies in print worldwide and have been translated into more than 35 languages. Cassandra now lives in Massachusetts. Holly Black is the number one New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of fantasy novels, short stories, and comics. She has been a finalist for many awards, including the Nebula and Newbery Honor Awards. She has sold over 26 million books worldwide, and her work has been translated into over 30 languages and adapted for film. She currently lives in New England with her husband and son in a house with a secret library. Lucky. I know. I've actually seen tours of her library (gasps) on her Instagram, and I'm like, I would highly recommend. I know. Okay. First of all, I think what I'm dying to know, because... Having you two on this podcast together, it's because we know you're good friends, and I would love to know how you two met and how that friendship kind of formed and began. Okay, so um, let's see. We met in 2003. Two. You came to my first signing. Oh, yeah. You're right. 2002. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. Cassie wrote a bunch of funny parodies on the internet. And I, um, I had finished my first book and I was home in my house a lot <laughs> looking on the internet. And I wrote to her. I don't remember why. Because you wanted to tell me that you liked me. <laughs> I think, I mean, I did. I definitely did. Um, she wrote and- to me and she said she thought that my uh, parodies were funny. And mm-hmm. I wrote back and said, thank you. Like, I know who you are. I've read your book, Tithe. It's really great to hear from you. And but she, my book wasn't out. Right. Her book wasn't out yet. 
So she wrote back to me and was like, no one has read my book. And I said that a friend of mine had an arc of tithe um, and she was reviewing it. That's how I got to read it. So um, I don't remember how it came up that Holly had a signing in uh, New York at Books of Wonder, but I went to it. It was my very first signing. Uh, it was with Tamora Pierce. And yeah, yeah it was very exciting. And I went, I brought a couple of my friends. And then after Holly was done signing, I asked her if she wanted to get coffee. And she didn't appear worried that I was going to murder her. <laughs> <laughs> so we went out, we got coffee. We ended up talking about all the books that we liked. It turned out we liked all the same books. Um, we had, you know, the same taste. We became made her come shoe shopping with me. I can't remember why. <laughs> you guys, y'all did a lot of shoe shopping back in the day. I did we go to did. a lot of shoe shopping. No, it's just that we did analog shoe shopping back in the day. Like we would yeah. go to actual stores as opposed to just ordering things on the internet. It's true. Although she did not get coffee because although you may almost be a convert at this you point. I took you to bakery and we had hot chocolate. Yeah. I mean, I had coffee. Well, you probably had coffee, but I had hot chocolate. I mean, I'm like, yeah. that's a great <laughs> origin story. <laughs> and then you guys just kept kept the friendship after, right? Yeah, we were not far away from each other. But yeah, not far at all. She was in New York and I was in New Jersey. And um, we also, we truly love this uh, specific British fantasy author, Tenneth Lee. And I think we were like, but no one loves Tenneth Lee. So yeah. we knew we had to be friends. And she was working on a little project called City Bones. Just a little one. We have heard of this. <laughs> yeah, I told Holly about it and she became my person to bounce ideas off of. And she also gave me early copies of Spiderwick so that I could, you know, repay the favor. And I almost left um, the art, like the, the copy edited manuscript for Spiderwick on the subway. <laughs> oh, no. I bet that would have been like a treasure. I'm sure someone would have just thrown it out. <laughs> so. I, was, I know, but I felt like I had left like a like a top secret file on the train. <laughs> I got off and then I like threw myself back onto the train like, oh, my God, because I had put it down in the seat next to me. This is fantastic. I, I was like, like, is it? Have you told people this? Do you ask this a lot? Because this I've is I've never told, heard any of this. We've definitely told the story, though, okay. you know, possibly not the one about the. <laughs> that's amazing 21 years of friendship did i hear that right mm-hmm. i'm on any plans to celebrate i think 25 is coming up oh yes. what are you gonna it's like a point. excuse to go somewhere yeah. yes i'm all you guys can talk I mean, about yourselves on that but cassie does love to travel i know i'll does go somewhere very far away and then make holly join me that's my usual. me to remote locations yeah yeah in remote locations I love that where you live very closely, but you're like, oh, oh we yeah, have to get together like, in Spain. Yeah, exactly. That, that was our entire experience of writing Magisterium together. She would really? go to tell, we would, tell we me more. So close. And she was like, we will not write one word of it locally. <laughs> I kept being <laughs> like, like Italy and you will meet me there. Oh, also, you wrote it in Italy? We wrote it all oh, over the place. There's five books Australia, oh, yes, Italy, Book France. One. Mexico. Jamaica, Mexico. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that process of uh, why you like to write elsewhere. Because I know, Cassie, in your bio on your website, it talks a little bit about how you like to write with other people around you, like that energy. But I'd love to know kind of what that process is like when you're at home and then what it's like when you do go somewhere else and go somewhere else with these people that you're are your people, you know? 
and like what what your process is at home and then what your process is away, which I, mm-hmm. I'm re, re, retelling the question because um, I was like, oh, I, I want to hear you talk about this. Um, I do like writing away, um, which I think we discovered together in 2009, maybe. Um, we both had these really bad deadlines um, and our friends, Scott Westerfeld, had told us about a small town in Mexico called San Miguel de Allende, where he had gotten a lot of work done. And we just decided that since it had worked for him, maybe it would work for us. So we rented a house in this small town and we went there, not knowing anything about the town, not knowing anything about where anything was located. So the house turned out to be kind of on the outskirts of town. Um, and uh, we also thought, Mexico, it will be hot. It was not hot. It was very cold. <laughs> It's up in the mountains, yeah. It's it was its way up in the mountains. So we uh, we learned that lesson. Um, but we did get a lot done. We both got like a huge amount of work done. Um, and so I we were both like, wow, this really works. And I think for me, one of the things that works really well about it is that I'm just away from sort of my daily sort of concerns, you know, all the stuff that crop up in life, crops up in life regular errands, doctor's appointments, phone calls, family stuff. Like you're just away from all of that. And also you can kind of tell the people that you work with, you know, your publisher, whatnot, I'm going to be away. And it's like magic. They don't try to contact you. I don't know why. (laughs) Even though they don't. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) But they don't. So you're suddenly like in this space that's away from all of the like administrative kind of stuff that you have to do. Um, And so for me, it sort of lets me get into this mental space where like, right, I'm, all I'm doing is writing. So it is very different than my process at home because my process at home has to allow for life. Mm-hmm. Holly, do you do the majority of your writing at home or away? So I hugely changed my process um, in the last like four years, probably uh, in the sense that so you know, I would go away on retreats and I do love, I love that you wake up in the story. You go to sleep in the story. I love that you have like people there that you can reach out to when you're stuck and like have conversations with, um, and you know, will help you and you can help them. Like I, I do love that process. Um, and at home for a long time, we had like a miniature version of that in the sense that, Myself and Cassie and our friend Kelly Link would meet up at coffee shops and then at Cassie's house. Um, And as both Kelly and I have kids, this became more integral (laughs) Um, in the sense that we, you know, like if I'm at my house, I'm interrupted pretty constantly. But then when we were forced, you know, over the pandemic to sort of separate, I sort of tunneled back into my office and now I have a bigger office. And now I've been doing a lot of writing at home on a desktop alone. So yeah. it's been uh, it's been really different and interesting. Yeah, I can see COVID changed so much, too, I feel like, with writing processes and just how we engaged with others on a daily, on in our daily lives. Yeah. Your story sounds very familiar, familiar to me and Alex, because when we really need to, like, bunker down and get some stuff done, we're all trip time like let's go on a mini vacation. <laughs> yeah. because it really helps like you're right like changing your location completely takes you out of what you're so used to and really sparks I feel like creativity for us mm-hmm. and gets us out of our usual you know heads and just life yeah. for, the, for that time being but there's a lot of power in that being able to I'm like I'd, I wish we could go to like Italy and stuff but 
we had to, you know, somewhere. I mean, all trips are good. We, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, cause we couldn't really go very many places. We rented like a snowbound house in Vermont and nice. went there. That sounds so um, charming. And mm-hmm. just worked there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pivot just a little bit because we do have a few questions. Oh, my God, I have one. Do you want me to ask? Yeah, ask yours. Mm -hmm. Well, just because we were just chatting about this, I'd love to hear more about how involved you guys are in each other's writing and editing process along the way, Mm -hmm. since you are so close and both authors. Um, And do you still like to um, exchange your manuscripts and get feedback? Oh, definitely. Okay. Absolutely. Tell me more. Even though Holly now hides in her house and I have to pry her out like an oyster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, um, we do still do a lot of, I mean, the same, the same kind of workshopping stuff. Um, we'll usually call a workshop either at the beginning of a project to talk about the project. Um, maybe during the project, if you're stuck on something and then always at like the end of the project, like pretty much when you're turning it into your publisher, to talk about, you know, that draft and what needs to be done to turn that draft into a final draft. And so, um, yeah, we, we all do it. Like me, I do it. Kelly does it. Holly does it. And we have meetings. We talk about, um, the work and, uh, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that's changed really. Right. And I think that, you know, sometimes like, Sometimes more than one, sometimes, you know, and, and a lot more informally too, which is, I think what I really love about being local and having, you know, a community of friends where, you know, they've been with me through so many books. They know all of my problems. They know all of my quirks. They know that all of my drafts are going to be skeletal and I'm going to be fleshing them out. They know I'm going to rip out the whole middle. And then nothing is probably going to be the same, you know, in the first draft as the the last draft. And, um, you know, they're able to be brutally honest. When I was writing Book of Night, I had a problem. I had an idea of how I wanted the romance to work. And it didn't work in the first probably couple of drafts. And at some point I went to Gaston Kelly and I said, I fixed it. Can you just look at this? And they were like, you have made it worse. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and, um, like, and I, had, I was mad. I had to go off and, like, really, again, rethink what wasn't working. But, like, what if I hadn't had that community? Like, I feel like a lot of times we think of critique as something that is going to hurt or that is harsh or is a thing you must bear. But critique is such a gift. It is such a gift you give someone to be open to them being annoyed and telling them something they don't want to hear that is going to just absolutely save them. You tell them before the world tells them, you know, that's that's the whole thing. We always say to each other, if I screw up in this way, you'll tell me, right? Right. You know, that's that's your job. (laughs) And that's just a a really good friendship. Like, I feel like that. um, I mean, you say it's a gift and, and I totally understand that. Like just from our personal experience of running a company together and then working with a lot of our close friends. And and that's that is a gift. And you get critique. Ours happens to come in the form of of character flaws (laughs) because we're leading a whole company (laughs) and we have to coordinate. We have to coordinate, you know, like how to work with 40 people. And so but I totally get it. It's such a gift to have someone who can be honest with you knowing that it's for 
they just want the same thing as you. And it sounds like you both really want each other to succeed in creating really good art with your work. And so I think that that's really admirable and and like such a gift to have each other. So that's pretty cool. Do you have uh, any particular edit in a book that stands out to you as being one that you're really irritated, but you're like, they're right. And I have to change this thing to make it better. Is there anything that you like top of mind? Well, I mean, I wasn't thrilled to figure out I had to read <laughs> the romance word. <laughs> like I just told you. <laughs> I mean, there's a million things. I don't think I can remember them all, but I do remember that um, that I very early on. We, remember, we were in Mexico, and I was writing City of Heavenly Fire, and I was going to kill Simon. He was. I do remember. Oh no. And Holly and my other friends like held basically an intervention for his life. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and they were like, no, he can't die. Here's the reasons. It made sense. But I was annoyed because that was my plot. She's mad. Um, <laughs> like, but, but, but. So I had to like reconfigure what happened. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, Simon almost died. <laughs> he was he was dangling over the cliff and they pulled him back. I mean, I think that is the thing about writing that is really hard to to um, to think about when you have read a finished draft of something is just how malleable those early drafts are. Just how much you talk through like, well, what if we killed this person? What if we killed that person? What if this went this way? What if this went that way? And it all seems so like set in stone now. Well, the goal is to make it feel inevitable, right? The story goes this way. It couldn't go another way. And that's what you want and hopefully achieve with your final. But I do think sometimes when you're talking about the process to people, they're very alarmed that it was different, you know, yeah. that there were various different drafts and was various different things happened. It almost feels like a quantum book. Like, you know, you get it at whatever, you know, stages, you know, you get it at. Oh yeah. That totally makes sense. Like you could, you dropped in, this is when you dropped in, in, in this quantum realm and this is when it was said done. And so this right. is the way it went. Um, that's interesting. And I'm like, I think it's also encouraging, though, because I think there's a lot of writers out there who, you know, look up to both of you and and your works. And it's kind of nice to know that I think a lot of writers, they have a misperception that when they're writing, they have to be writing the final draft. And so it's crippling mm -hmm. to them. And so to hear that you how malleable it is, it gives them the opportunity, I think, to be creative and and think about all these different alternative options for their story to then get to the best one. Like you have to have a lot of bad ideas before you get to the good one. And I think Holly and I are on the same page about books are made in the revision process. Your first draft is your first draft. It's just draft, you know, um, and the revisions make the book the book that it is. You know, there's that old saying, write drunk, get it sober. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I, I just I disadvise writing drunk. But I mean, the, I think that they say that because if you're going to do any part of it in an altered state, it's the it's the first draft because yeah. it's mm. the revision in which you need to be calm and sober and careful and where you create the actual final book. Yeah. Well, we were talking about killing Simon, which I don't know <laughs> if I'll ever recover. And I am curious, is there a character in any one of your books that is uh, that it is just your personal favorite character? What, Like if you could pluck out any character from a book and you're like, this is my favorite that I've ever. This is the person I want to meet and my favorite. In our own books? Mm hmm. And you could also do each, each other. So I was like, I was why like, not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's much easier to think about Cassie's books that way 
than mm-hmm. it is about my books because in some ways they're all my favorites in some ways you know the ones that are yet to come are my favorites because they're the ones I'm spending most of my time thinking about right now mm-hmm. you know um I mean obviously if I'm going to meet one of Gazi's characters I should meet Magnus <laughs> fully you should invite him to your news party heck yeah I, oh my gosh that's if only he would come <laughs> if only <laughs> I do have four cats now so I feel like that is a compelling offer I know he loves cats. So I know if I was going to meet someone from Holly's books, ooh, I think it's a toss up. Um, I'd like to meet Castle from the Curse Workers. I really love him, and he does give my favorite speech in all of Holly's books at in the last in Black Heart, the last book. <laughs> Truly, an amazing speech. Um, in Mexico. With our, friends. With our friends. <laughs> so this is a little bit of uh, patting herself on the back. <laughs> Come on. That's <laughs> and it wouldn't have existed had you not created such an amazing situation for us all to be creative. Wow. Thank you for facilitating that, Holly. Um, and Jude kind of scares me. So I think I would meet. She was just stabby. You know, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I like her, but not like to hang out with. Oh, I think maybe Val from Valiant. She seems like she I feel cool. like you should meet Maddox because you love you love war. You love she knows a lot about world <laughs> wars. Like you'd be very surprised how much military history Cassie like, knows. Tank movements. Yeah, I feel like he could talk <laughs> about tank movements with you. Like oh, we could have an interesting who else could. I do think that Maddox is hot. Like in my mind, he's very hot, but also very evil. <laughs> The best kind. Always my favorite. I don't like the best kind right there. <laughs> I mean, I would say though, from from Swordcatcher, I do want to hang out with the Ragpicker King. I love crime. He like loves crime. crime. <laughs> we could love crime together. And I just, Cassie, I literally, I'm just fangirling because I just finished this morning. I finished Swordcatcher, oh, and yeah. I'm like, I have so many theories. I was like, you ended it on like five cliffhangers, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm like, I loved it. I know everybody loves Shadowhunters, and I'm among the Shadowhunter lovers. But Sarkatcher is my favorite of yours. Oh, I, that's wonderful. Thank you. I loved it. And so I oh. just, I've, what's that? Oh, I was going to say, I'm working, I'm on the second book now, which is called The Ragpicker King. So oh, I know. I'll have to write in like a char- little fangirl character who is Holly, who's like, I'm here Ooh. to talk about crime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 100%. I know, uh, I've like for me Prosper Beck Prosper Beck is like mm. the like I'm like I have a ton of theory and I feel like I can't give any of my theory out there but I'm like I really want to know though okay Molly doesn't okay. know the answer but I'm like do you know the answer of who it is that's yes. a can you tell yeah. you do okay I'm like no I know you can't tell me no, <laughs> no I'm like, <laughs> whoops I'm like. I'm like, well, she's like, and then she she got dropped by the puppy. I'm like, I think appeared a moment later behind Ollie. (laughs) No, we never spoil each other's books, not for you know, we never have. Okay, okay. (laughs) But I love your theories. That makes me very happy. Oh yeah, yeah. No, like in my mind, I'm like, if like Antonetta is like way more involved than she seems to be. She's pretending to be. Yes. And I'm like, she's by far my favorite. I'm like, I loved everyone. But I was like, oh, she's someone who's dangerous. And I love her. And so I'm like, what if she's Prosper Beck? I'm like, I'm going through like the entire list of characters. And I'm like, she's actually this. She's actually this. So I fixated a bit on her. But she's definitely got a lot of other things going on. I know. I can't wait for book two. I'm very excited. So that's just me fangirling. (laughs) 
I know I'm very excited about it. But okay, so you've told each other what characters. Holly's like, I know things. So wait, and did you guys say you don't spoil each other's books? Like you meaning like to other people. We we do but to each other do you spoil like how the sausage made. I just mean like I wouldn't go to an event and be like, Hey, anybody, you know, waiting for Holly's next book, let me tell you what happens in it. (laughs) Holly would kill me. So, you know, I would only get to enjoy myself for a brief time. Yeah, no, we tell each other everything. There's no spoiling. Like, we're just like, what if this happened? What if that happened? It's, you know. Well, that's the best way because if you're going to, you know, obviously get through the whole series, you want to know all the little Easter eggs that lead up to it and help give direction that way. So that makes sense. But I thought for a minute there you said you didn't spoil them. And I'm like, how do you do that? (laughs) Oh, I see. see, see. (laughs) So I was like, wait, I missed that. I'm curious what kind of research you guys do for your books, because I know this is a fun question that authors get asked and I'm always fascinated to hear the things that you end up having to Google, the things that you research, what you're into. Um, so yeah, I'd love to just hear, because I just learned about Cassie's uh, World for, for World War. War. I was like, you and my husband, like I watched so many World War II documentaries yeah. with my husband and I I know way more about World War II than a normal person. <laughs> yeah. What's the thing? Like, what's your ancient Rome? It's for me, it's definitely World War II. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Okay, yeah, sorry. Back to Kelly's question, because I was like, I relate to that, but yes. So I think there's two kinds of research. There's the research that you don't know you're doing because it's just what you're into. And I think writers are largely weird people who love a lot of different weird things. I would agree. And so, for instance, there is a lot of research I've done about fairies, but probably the prime, like the, 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 bedrock upon which that is founded is just the fact that I really love fairy folklore and I've loved it since you know since I looked at Brian Froud and Alan Lee's illustrated book fairies when I was a child and was terrified um and so I think you know so many things fall into that category um and then there's the stuff you have to research and and I always like to tell uh my favorite research story which is that when I was writing Courage Workers, which is weirdly coming out of a bunch of this podcast, um, I wrote a scene where Castle got locked in the trunk of a car. And I uh, was trying to, like, figure out what that would be like. And it was having a hard time. Uh, and so I was out with Kelly and she had to do an errand. And I said, well, can you put me in the trunk of your car? And just drive me around and I'll, you know, I'll just sit back there and I'll sort of get a feel for what it's like. Wasn't it like a hatchback? That's the thing, is you're picturing a town car. But also, but she had a hatchback. So people could clearly see that she had kidnapped someone and put them in the front of the car. But no one helped me. No one stopped. No one had so I learned two things. One, Massachusetts is a lawless land. No one's gonna help you. Number two is that it's not that uncomfortable to be in the trunk of a car, but you could probably use a neck pillow. Yeah, a back pillow. <laughs> That's Dark it. insight into human nature. She went full into that. the research for that one. It wasn't just like a Google. You're all, I need to know. I'm committed. I'm just, oh I'm just picturing someone at a stoplight being like, not my problem. I know, right? Not my problem. Oh, fully. Because <laughs> I was like, what would I do? And then I was like, I don't, I mean, I like to think I'd call someone and be like, I saw this thing, but I definitely wouldn't like get out of the car and confront them because I'm assuming this is a murderer at this point. So this is true. I'm like you would do you would do braver things you you write the brave things in the books I'm like <laughs> I do not have like Jace's martial arts skills if I did it'd lead my life differently <laughs> <laughs> okay research um yes 
I think I, I agree with Holly. There's the research you do just because it's something you like and you enjoy um, reading or absorbing it or, you know, that kind of thing. I also love, I love folklore and I love mythology. So I sort of took all that sort of mythology stuff and smooshed it up into the sort of mythology of shadow hunters. The like all the stories are true because, you know, I love so many stories across so many different cultures and I wanted to include all of them. Um, and then uh, I think there's the kind of research that we do where our character needs to know something or needs to be an expert in something that we're not necessarily an expert in. So like for Swordcatcher, I had a huge amount of medical research because Lynn is a doctor and I couldn't just make that stuff up. I wanted it to work. I wanted like all the things that she did to be things that were real medical treatments at some point or another. So um, I watched a million medical shows. I consulted, uh, I read old, you know, medical, you know, journals and whatnot. And um, I consulted with, um, a friend who is a mutual friend of mine and Holly's that we, who is a doctor who we often hit up if we need like medical stuff. And so I had to go to her and say like, what's a, what's a medical procedure that you could theoretically perform with no modern tools um, and no anesthetic that will take someone from being almost dead to being alive, like fine and alive in like 30 seconds. And so she said cardiac tamponade, which is basically when blood fills your chest and presses down on your heart. So that's what's going on with Kel when Lynn first meets him. And the actual treatment is basically you cut a hole in the person's side and you stick a tube in there to drain the blood out. And that's what she does. Um, And it immediately brings somebody from being like, I'm suffocating to being fine because you've taken away the thing that was suffocating them. And there are accounts that I found going back to like ancient Rome of people doing this with reeds, people would usually die of infection afterwards. <laughs> We've got so magic that to cover that. Back in the day. And that I did have to do some sidestepping around, but it was really interesting just to, to find out that that was a procedure that you could do with basically without having access to modern medical. Yeah. Brilliant. I didn't even think of that. I did. It read. So uh, those scenes when done well with the research, they read so organically, and that's kind of the point for readers is, like, you don't want the reader to be pulled out of the story, so it needs to translate is legit, but not right. be the purpose of the chapter, you know? And so I I feel like the more books you read and the more authors we talk to, you kind of recognize those moments where you're like, oh, that was a research moment, but it read so smooth, they did the job, you know? So that's always super fun. Well, I've seen that procedure in a few medical dramas that I watch because yeah, every time now I see a medical drama and they yell chest tube. I'm like, I know what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I can perform that actually. Like, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to, but I could probably have a whack at it. I think I have wa- I watched a million YouTube videos of people doing it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It actually worries me that there are like YouTube videos up there that are like, if you would like to do this. And I'm like, I don't think this is how we should be. This is an indictment (laughs) of American insurance right here. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, if you have to do it at home. (laughs) I'm just picturing like, like the headlines next week is like authors, Cassandra Clare and Holly Black save a man's life (laughs) on the street. Well, me with a read. Oh, you're more on him, <laughs> and I poke something through his ribs. Maybe a drinking straw that would probably work. Actually, I think that just happened. I, like, I swear I've seen that. Yeah, where was that? We just watched that, and then it didn't. Anyways, yes, agreed. Oh, we did. Okay, yes. Um, okay, so I do have a. I have an interesting question, which I love um, to kind of hear from authors in a time where it can be really vulnerable or tricky to navigate being a public figure. 
because you started your careers kind of before social was a thing. Um, how do you prioritize finding peace and happiness in your daily life when, you know, it's kind of chaotic and we're getting, you know, bombarded with news and different things happening and, you know, people having opinions? What do you do to find peace and divine happiness and to disconnect from those things or, or to just kind of find solace? On one hand, I want to be like, ah, ha, ha, solace. <laughs> I know. On the other hand, I do think that there's a bunch of stuff that I've been trying to do, you know, differently in my life. Like I I take weekends off now and I didn't used to. I worked all the time, you know, every day. Um, I have, I don't have, I don't really look at social media on my phone. I started, Cass make fun of me because I have some silly games. I got a cat game where I mess around with some cute cats. So I try to do that. I got a lot of candles, got a lot of crystals. <laughs> I was like, 100%. I'm happy that Holly is taking weekends off. We're always yelling at her for working too much. Um, yeah. But I, I shouldn't talk. I got a new I got a new schedule from my agents today for like my next five books and they had built in breaks. And I was like, are these necessary? <laughs> <laughs> like, if we got rid of these. And they were like, no, you need to take breaks. So, um, you know, I think it's one of the things about having, about being self-employed, and you guys might find this too, is if somebody isn't setting your hours for you, you're often tempted to work all the hours you have, you know, all the hours that are available because you're the one setting your hours. So you're the one deciding how much you work and, and whether you skip and whether you work weekends and whether you work every day and whether you work in the night. And I think a lot of us, you know, are kind of compelled to work all the time. Um, and because we love it and also because, you know, we don't want to, you know, we, I think we worry about, you know, not, you know, we worry about the the opposite. We worry about like, well, if I don't do the work, you know, then, then it called, you know, that the person will have the problem is me. So I should work as much as I possibly can make sure that the work gets done. But, you know, I think, we are all learning, especially because of the pandemic, how important it is to kind of schedule self-care into your routine so that you don't burn out. Um, and I think for me, it's uh, I take walks. I listen to music. Um, I don't I also don't check social media on my phone. Like I'll look at it on and I try to schedule hours with which I will sort of interact with social media. And then the rest of the time I try not to look at it. Um, I kind of follow the don't read the comments rules. Um, you know, I do try to interact with my readers as much as possible, but I'll usually, I have an assistant and I'll usually have her read through things before I read them, that kind of thing. Just, you know, you kind of want to put a little bit of a buffer between you and the whole internet. Yeah. And I answer physical mail. She does. And not email. Really? You have to send me a letter. That's amazing. I'll write you back, but you have to send me a letter. From your from your fans, I'm like you're gonna get it like a random influx <laughs> from the <laughs> when this, I mean, we're all gonna like welcome to some letter, but like I don't I don't answer email. Yeah, mm-hmm. me neither. You have to really think. You have to put a stamp. You have to think that you really want to send me this, and then put a stamp on it. And at that point, if you want to rant at me, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> you put in the time. That's funny. I sometimes get letters through my publisher, but the problem is it takes so long for them to get them to me. Mm-hmm. I just got one and it was an invitation to a wedding that already happened like six months ago and it felt so bad. Oh, no. I was like, but, but I didn't know. <laughs> it's tricky. It's tricky. We were, I, I feel like um, 
putting those boundaries in place, especially when you're in the arena and doing something vulnerable, like writing a book and putting your creative ideas out there. It's so important to prioritize and love yourself the most um, because I think a lot of people will want things from you. And and so it's important to realize that you can only give your best self if you put boundaries. I know Kelly and I, yeah, we were working like 80-hour weeks at the beginning of Lit Joy, and we were the only two employees and doing all the things. And so it, it's so easy to forget about how you are a human who exists separate from your work and that that's just a thing you do, but you exist and, and are of value outside of that. And so... Well, I think, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like certainly as a writer, like I was so excited to have my first book sold. I was so excited to meet other writers. And so you crash into this community, this like new community. And this is your life, right? This is your, this is your friends. This is all like everything becomes centered around work. And I think it's really easy then when you're given a lot of opportunities, like you're invited to things and people want you to do things and you're so, again, you're so just so grateful. You're so happy. You just say yes to everything. And then there's no way to do it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you have to learn that lesson, right? That everybody does, you know, when they commit to everything and then suddenly they can't do all of it or you try to do all of it and you just wear yourself out. So mm. you do learn, I think over time that you have to there's he was it Jonathan Latham was one of the Jonathans the no was it Latham I don't I don't remember I think Jonathan (laughs) Latham after Motherless Brooklyn came out she wrote the word no on a big piece of paper and taped it above his phone so when people (laughs) called and can you do this can you do this you know can you do this other thing he would just be like no and so I always think of that like as an example of like, right, you, you are, you can say no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think like, oh, Holly of the future, she'll be able to do all these things. Right. And, you know, and you like become Holly of the future. And you're like, Holly of the past is a very bad boss. <laughs> right. You're like, Holly of the past. I really, I really don't like her. She really, really got me committed to a lot of jobs. <laughs> this feels like a memoir of my life. <laughs> I like, know. That totally makes sense. We burned the candle at both ends for many years. So we are finally now like really protecting our time. So like we totally get it. And that's why we like to ask this question. So what are you doing? Yeah. What are y'all, what are y'all doing? Oh, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> well, what are your healthy coping <laughs> strategies? What are we doing? Um. Well, we both have a candle that's like a good energy candle that we, <laughs> we light do. every morning. <laughs> it's like a white sage candle. Like sage is our room. Um, we both work from home. And so, uh, in fact, the majority of our team is remote. And so we don't have an actual office. So that allows us, allows me at least to put in these little breaks throughout the day where mm-hmm. I'm like, I schedule lunch now. So I actually eat lunch every day. Whereas before, I would just eat a ton of food at about three, like enough food for like four people. Was that funny? <laughs> it's <laughs> funny like- because so far, all of our coping mechanisms are like, like getting up to like a level we can most people would consider just horrible. Right. I'm allowed to have oh, lunch. Yeah. I was like, oh. I was like, oh my gosh, like, you're right. I suddenly realized I have never done that. <laughs> I mean, it's a good idea. <laughs> you're like, brilliant lunch. 
<laughs> I just have like a drawer of food and snacks next to me. And that's usually my lunch is I just keep okay, it going. That's bad. So we said squirrel. Squirrel. <laughs> that's I, I'm still in that phase of like, it's fine. It's fine. I'll just eat later. I'll eat later. And then when it's finally later, I'm like, it's so close to dinner. I guess I'll just wait it out. And then I'm hangry by five. You know, it's a whole system. Yeah. The new gorge at five. But like I have my beef <laughs> stick at like one. So that gets me through. Always love a good beef, st- beef stick at one. <laughs> I used to say I was like a snake because I would eat one meal a day. Like I was enormous. I feel like this is an area in which we have suffered not working together as much as we used to because it used to be that Holly, that Holly and Kelly would come over, and when they got to my house, I would know it was time for lunch because they would show up. Around one. <laughs> They're like, "You were my lunch alarm." No, I don't know. <laughs> kind yeah, of. Exactly. It's so true. I know. Another thing I do is I don't work weekends. When you said that, Holly, I was like, I don't do that anymore. Um, and I used to work every weekend. And but then so, it like inadvertently made our team feel like they needed to work. But it was just a catch up day, I feel like, for us mm-hmm. when we were doing it. And so we were like, oh, sweet. This is a great precedent that we can set. But it was hard. Yeah. It was weirdly hard to stop doing weekends, I feel like. Yeah. But. Well, because a lot of times you feel you look at the weekend and you feel like here's a time when I don't have to do any administrative stuff. You know, I, I'm not going to have a meeting. I'm not going to have a zoom because it's the weekend. So I can just work. So yep. I definitely have that too. And I could catch up because yep. I didn't, because I set unreasonable goals for myself, which I was unable to hit during the week. Therefore the only way to possibly catch up on my unreasonable goals is to work the weekend. <laughs> I have that. Logic. I mean, it's like I took it <laughs> off, but then I put it back. hundred <laughs> percent. I've moved my weekend work to now it's where I read. Like I just physically sit and read. It weirdly took a pause um, when we were like really in the hustle of things. Oh, yeah. We kind of stopped doing any physical reading, just like audiobooks when we were in the middle of it. And do you find that you consume more books with audiobooks or physical books in hand? Because I feel like when I'm really busy, I run out of in hand reading time. So we'll do audio. It's interesting. I've never moved to audio. Books. Really? I mean, I'll, I'll listen to them sometimes. Like on tour, I'll put on audiobooks when I am putting on my makeup and stuff. Yeah. But um, in general, I still read in hand. Really? Cassie, are you the same? Yeah. I don't like when I was saying, like, I take walks and listen to music. I don't listen to audiobooks because, like, the whole point is sort of to clear my brain. Yeah. Yes, words totally. As much as possible. So. Um, I listen to podcasts when I'm sort of cleaning up around the house kind of thing. But my reading, I do physical, mostly physical books or E. Mm. Interesting. She likes a murder podcast. I love a murder podcast. Oh, a murder. Yeah, those are popular. I'm just not paying enough attention. Like when I'm cleaning or doing something else for me to be able to like listen to a book, I'll suddenly realize that like I got distracted. And so I lost my place kind of thing. But murder podcast, you can check in and out. You don't have to focus that much. Someone got murdered. You're like, oh, but there it is. There's the plot. <laughs> um, okay, so do you listen to your own audiobooks ever? Have you ever listened to your own? Because I've listened to all of your audiobooks for both of you. Yeah. There is no greater torture I can imagine than being really? forced to listen to my own audiobook. <laughs> They're a delight. Yeah. You picked fantastic yeah. readers. Yeah. I will like, tunnel through the floor. <laughs> okay, I don't need it that much, but imagine that. There was a camera filming you all day, and then somebody offered to play the footage back. You're like, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I feel about it. Like, I listen to it, and I'm like, ah, too personal. Like, Uh, (laughs) oh my gosh, totally. I never thought about it, but yeah. 
That totally mm-hmm. makes sense. But I can, yeah, I can listen to other audiobooks, just not really my own. Right. I mean, I think the essential tragedy of being a writer is that you became a writer because you love stories and you wanted to make up the kind of stories that you love. And then you will never, never experience them as stories. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Do you still fall deeply in love with the characters and everything, though, even though it's not the same experience as reading a book you fell in love with? But do you feel closer to your characters than ones that you other people have written and you've read? Like, how does that all kind of work? Like, what's the difference between characters in someone else's book and your relationship with them and characters in your own book? That's the better question, that one. <laughs> I mean, I feel, I, you know, I, I definitely feel closer to them, but mm-hmm. less in love with them. Mm, okay. It's a little bit like, mm, <laughs> like kissing her own hand, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It's too weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Oh my god. I love them. I like Cassie's like, I love it. What happened to them? Yeah. And, you know, being excited about like a scene that I know is coming and that kind of thing. I definitely love the characters and the process. Um well, but I don't in love. Process. I don't know. But You're right. In love is kind of a weird way of, of for me to think about it. It's more like, oh, I love I love the idea of that scene. I love that piece of business that's going to happen. I love this thing about this character. But I think in love is hard because you know you that distance. aspects of your brain yeah. in some ways. I just think you need some distance to be in love. I agree. You love them. I love them. I love them all a lot. But. Yeah, I love them. And in a different way than I love other people's characters. Other people's characters have have a more have a mystique mm. that you know where I love them, but I'm not in inside them in the same way, wearing their skin, so to speak. Oh, speaking of murder podcasts, <laughs> oh, I was like, what? <laughs> wearing their skin? <laughs> that could be the name of your podcast, Cassie. <laughs> wearing their skin. <laughs> People don't know what they're going to get. Murder, <laughs> writing. Very popular on the true crime circuit before people found out that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, excellent. So I kind of just going back to that feedback piece. Has there ever been a piece of feedback? Sorry, Kelly, did you have a question? I feel like I cut you off there. It's okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. They're all in Oh, okay. Good. Will you go ahead and ask one? Well, I, I was cut you off. curious to know... Um, out of all your works that you've written, do you feel like there was one that was the hardest to write and why? I mean, for me, Swordcatcher, because I think the switching from YA to adult was more challenging than I had initially thought that it would be. I don't think I knew what I was getting into. Um, And I think I imagined it one way. And then when I sat down to do it, there were, I had all of these like questions and doubts. Like, am I writing something that, is right for adults. What do adults like to read anyway? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. do adults like this sort of thing? I mean, Holly and I had a million conversations that are basically like, do adults like this sort of thing? Like we are not adults and we don't know. But like, I think when we, when it's your own thing, you do get beset by these questions. You know, I'm like, well, I've written 25 young adult books, but I've never written an adult book. And so it was the first, I think when you do anything for the first time, it's the hardest. Yeah. Very true. I mean, I think it's hard to say because on, on one hand, nothing will ever be harder than my first book. Sure. Where I just did not know what a book was. <laughs> like, how do, how do they begin? How do they end? <laughs> Why do characters do things? What is dialogue? <laughs> um, but I definitely think that when I was writing Book of Night, I freaked out. And in some cases, possibly like over nothing. But I think I had told myself a story 
um, about like someday I'm going to write an adult book and um, something about it will be different. Right. And so I think it was very weighted by that feeling that there was something about it that would be different. And, and, and yeah, about questions of like, I'm really used to, for instance, like when I look at a cover in YA, I understand what it means. Like I understand what it's meant to convey. I understand kind of what subgenre it's, you know, it's pushing into, but I didn't understand those things. Um, as an adult writer, I understood them as an adult reader, but it's not really the same thing. Like I remember um, going to our friend Paolo Bachelupe and being like, open fantasy versus closed fantasy. What do adults like? <laughs> and he was like, closed fantasy. And I was like, great. So I'll be writing an open fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> that feels overwhelming to have like such confidence or at least to have such familiarity with a process and a genre and then just totally like start over in not necessarily your technical skills but it seems like it just was a start over from understanding what the target was like you had a brand new target and you're trying to learn how to hit it and so that's an interesting I I hadn't even thought of that because I felt like uh, in reading both of your adult works it felt just it felt so natural, natural to read, but I can see why that would be a, a bigger struggle to write. And so, yeah, that's intense. And I'm like, you and I can kind of relate just in our new venture, even with the podcast. Oh, yeah. It's just, we don't it's know scary we're <laughs> because it's so new from what we've been doing for the last several years. But I don't know. That's the best part, right? To kind of. And you're putting yourselves out there, right? Feel that again. That's yeah. got to be different. Yeah. yeah. Or that's people getting part. to know you. I know. I'm. That's the part I'm the most nervous about, actually. I'm not, it's not that I'm a super private person, but um, I kind of do prefer behind the scenes. And and I've been, a, I've been writing for like eight years. So I started writing before we started Litjoy, probably 10 years now. I started writing and that's kind of how I got invited to a book club, how I met Kelly. And so um, I've thought about publishing just because now I have Litjoy, I have so many connections in, in, with writers and agents and I'm like, I'd love to publish my fantasy novel. But then there's this part of me that's really just terrified to put me out there. Not even necessarily my work, but me. And so um, I think I ran up against that with the podcast, too. It's just that's super vulnerable because you're I love that quote that um, you're in the arena uh, where it talks about how you're brave enough to go in the arena and kind of uh, put yourself out there. But um that does mean that everyone in the stands is going to have a say about it, uh, even though they're not brave enough to go down into the arena themselves. And so I always admire authors and creatives who put themselves out there because that's the braver thing to do. That's much braver to put your creative work out there than to have an opinion about it. And so it's also a quote, quote, ratatouille. <laughs> well. I encourage you to publish a book because being a writer is the perfect kind of fame. No one will ever know you outside of writerly spaces. <laughs> you can go to the <laughs> supermarket. Like you can go. <laughs> no one will ever recognize you outside of, you know, these very specific spaces where when mm -hmm. you go into them, you know, okay, I'm going to be among, you know, writers and readers. And so I, I know that that's going to be the experience that I have there. So you, yeah. should, have, you should do it. I'll write that on the blurb on the back of my book. Holly Black told me I should publish this book. 
or a book. Just no one would ever recognize me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Have you been recognized ever in a moment that's really surprised you? Where you're like, oh, like, how did you find me? How do you know who I am? That kind of a moment. Inevitably, I am recognized when I'm with my mother. And I don't know why, except that it gives her great pleasure and always (laughs) makes me feel embarrassed because then she will then give the person a long speech about how she raised me. (laughs) (laughs) It's all down to her. And I'm like, (laughs) so inevitably, if I'm with my mom, somebody will come up and be like, oh, are you Cassandra Clare? And I'm like, oh, yes. And then my mom's like, and I'm her mother. She launches into it. <laughs> Your mom's calling that in, like in the universe. She's I know, like, it's like she put that out in the universe, and so it's happening for her. And so each time I'm like, no, what's gonna happen? <laughs> <laughs> Relatedly, every time I look like a real slug. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like the worse you look, the more likely you are that someone's gonna be like, is it you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. Me. Like I don't know who you, that is. I don't know that person. <laughs> Like if you're dra- if like you're going through dragging through an airport on tour and like your hair is all greasy and you haven't slept and like you're wearing like a potato sack, then inevitably someone will recognize you and, and want to take <laughs> pictures with you. And you're like, this is well, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what plight? Oh my gosh, that's funny. Oh, uh, Cassie, you're you just said I'm you know like I'm Cassandra Clare, and your mom's like I'm your mother, and you I don't know if you are okay sharing this, so you can say no and we can cut it. But um, you write under a pen name. Cassandra Clare is not your given name, and so uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested. I read your bio, and so it seems like the switch was kind of when you had written uh, a book when you were in Los Angeles uh, or a short story and then you made the switch, how come you went to Cassandra Clare? And maybe tell us a little bit about that. Uh, So I always thought that my real name was basically unpronounceable. People always had a lot of difficulty with it. So I always thought I'll have to have a pen name because I'd worked in a lot of bookstores and I knew how important it was to have a name that people could remember easily. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I started writing like the parodies on live journal and stuff, I used the name Cassandra Clare because um, when I was a kid, I had, I had written a whole long book about a character named Cassandra. I think it was Cassandra Montclair, something like that. Terrible book called the beautiful Cassandra. It was based on Jane Austen's story that she Mm -hmm. wrote for her sister, which is also called the beautiful Cassandra. She sister's name was Cassandra. And she wrote this really charming, like short story about how her sister went into London and she like robbed a bunch of jewelry stores and hit a bunch of hackney cab drivers over the head. It's really adorable. And I like <laughs> it's in my head. And so I took um, the pen name from that. And first I wrote a long book called the beautiful Cassandra, which was a historical romance set in the 1700s. And I did not know anything about the 1700s because I was 11. And so I just put whatever I felt like in there. So ball gowns, but also rock bands. It was very historical. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so when I I never thought of publishing under my real name, it's interesting. Like when I went into it, I thought, you know, I'm going to publish under this pen name. It's going to be much more easy for people to remember than my real name. And also, I think it I felt like it provided a certain amount of buffer, like we're talking about, like going out in the arena, being vulnerable, that kind of thing. It felt like it provided a little bit of a buffer between me and the world and the world's response to my work. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. And I'm like, you're totally right with the buffer and kind of that protection. I am interested, though. Holly Black is a very easy name to remember and recognize. And is that your given name? 
Um, it's it's not my maiden name. It's my okay. married name. But yes. my husband and I both changed our last name to Black. Interesting. Okay, so you so have a both. name change too. So it, yes, but it is my legal name. Um, but my yeah my uh, my main name is Holly Riggenbach, which is a lot of names. That's a pretty cool name too, though. I'm not gonna lie. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, both of them recognizable names. Industry names now. I remember Julia Quinn talking about how she had picked the name Julia Quinn because Quinn would put her near Nora Roberts on the shelf. Brilliant. Oh. I know. So I was like, oh, it's interesting. Like we, we we do think about like what what's the name? What's the name people are going to be able to remember and spell easily? Mm-hmm. That's super smart. That's awesome. Well, I think we kind of just have one more question unless you have any for us, but. Our last oh, question. I have like two. But... Oh, okay. You go ahead. You tell you ask. All, just as we wrap up. Yeah. So I wanted to um, have you guys share what you're working on now. And I know yeah, Cassie, you've mentioned a little bit about it. And then we have, yeah, one more final question. Okay. I'm working on two things at once, which is my besetting sin. Um, <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how I do these things to myself. So um, I'm working on the Ragpicker King, which is the sequel to Swordcatcher. Um, and then I'm also working on the first book in The Wicked Powers. So, um, yeah, so I'm sort of splitting my time. Amazing. Well, I'm just finishing up uh, the last Tiny Corrections on Prisoner's Throne, which is coming out in March. uh, And is the sequel is the sequel to the Stolen Heirs duology. So it's done. Uh, And I am currently trying to outline um, Thief of Night, which is the sequel to Book of Night. Um, So all sequels for me. I'm so excited. I know. This is amazing. And then um, this is a question that we love to ask everyone who comes on our podcast, which is just tell us what you guys are reading right now. What's on your nightstands? What are you reading? Um, I just read um, Alex Harrow's new book. Darling House is great. It's so good. So, so good. And um, and I just, just got uh, the new um, Martha Wells Murderbot book. Ooh. Which uh, also super great. Um, such a comfort read for me. Those are fun. I'm like, Murder. we are <laughs> recommending Alex's book yeah. actually. And we do like these fun Fridays on Fridays where we do quick book recommendations for people to just add to their TBR pile. Mm-hmm. And um, we're recommending Alex's book. So that's rad. I loved it. I think it's my favorite of her books. Truly, truly loved it. Amazing. I also recommend Starling House. It's great. Um, I'm reading, um, I've been reading a bunch of T. Kingfisher, which I hadn't read mm-hmm. her before. And so I've been working my way through the horror novels that she's written. So I read A House with Good Bones. And right now I'm reading What Moves the Dead, which is Ooh. great. She has this really wonderful lyrical style. Um, and I'm reading a nonfiction book called The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces, which is sort of a feminist rebuttal to The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Nice. I'm loving it. It's fun. I love it. <laughs> and oh the new gosh. murder rap book is System Collapse. I, I just looked up it. <laughs> System Collapse. Got Perfect. it. We'll put all those in the show notes yeah. too. And we'll put what you're working on and um, so that people can find you and find your projects. And yeah, it was lovely having you. Yeah. This has been an incredible interview. And I cannot wait to hear everyone else's response to it because I just know in our own team at LitJoy, people have been very excited uh, to be able to hear from both of you. And at the same time, even this Mm -hmm. is so much fun. And we just, again, appreciate you so much for taking the time out. We know how busy you guys are. And um, 
That's it. That's all we got. All right, reader. Thank you for listening to the Lit Dread podcast. Make sure to rate and review us. And like a good book, don't forget to recommend us to your friends.